Okay, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Real Life. Now, I know that um, our mission statement says to help every person possible find real life in Jesus and look more like him every day, but this is a little too literal. I don't think so. So, anyway, um, so anyway, welcome Jesus to church this morning. Uh, and uh, uh, so, um, in keeping with biblical tradition um, if you had a cup of coffee or something and you have run out of that in the middle of the service uh, Jesus will be going around um, offering you uh, what's it say on the side there? Water. water water except it's not water it has been transformed transformed it bam biblical you can't argue with it so uh, anyway just hold your glass up in the middle of the service <laughs> Jesus will be Bye. Uh, no kids. <laughs> no kids. He will. He will. Water. Yeah, he'll. You'll card him. You won't card him because you know. You, he doesn't even have to check it twice. He just knows. Uh, okay. Anyway, welcome to real life. Those of you who've joined us here and online, uh, we're excited to have Jesus, and now we're going to worship him. Well, not me, the real one. Him.
All right, hey, a couple things before we get to our uh, giving talk this morning. First of all, on behalf of Amber and her family and uh, myself and my family, thank you so much for the generous gifts you gave to us last week for Pastor Appreciation Month and even things we've received this week. Uh, we love being here, love serving with you, uh, and love being a part of what God is doing here at Real Life. So thank you uh, for that. Appreciate that very much. Secondly is um, the cold weather shelter here in El Dorado is opening tonight. And they are still in need of volunteers. And so if you are thinking maybe you want to get involved there, volunteer somehow, um, let me know or I'll be posting the... Um, actually, that won't work very well. Anyway, uh, let me know after the service day if you're interested and I'll get you the number and you can uh, get on the schedule there uh, for that. Appreciate those who serve in that um, way to help those who are uh, struggling right now. Now, as we prepare for uh, uh, the time of worship where we get a chance to give back to God financially some of what he's given to us, I want to go in a little different direction this morning. You'll see how this ties into uh, the message a little, a little later. But this Tuesday is uh, our election. And what happens on Tuesday will have a direct effect not only on our national government, not only on international interests and the balance of power, but on our personal and everyday lives. It will directly affect our jobs, personal income, healthcare expense, as well as Medicare and schooling and COVID recovery, and perhaps even our constitutional freedoms. But guess what? Every national election has the potential to directly, if not completely, change the course of our country. I'm not going to tell you or suggest who you ought to vote for. I would just encourage you to pray to ask God for wisdom as you make your decision. But what I want to direct our hearts to this morning, in this moment, is who is really in control. One of the things that really has irritated me about national politics and, and really about anything that you see on TV today where humans are involved in, we seem to make it about one person. And that person is either the Savior or they're Satan. And, and if it, they're on opposing sides, you know, everybody thinks that their guy is the savior and the, the other guy is savior, uh, Satan. But look, whichever direction our country goes after Tuesday, we are followers of Jesus. And whether our worship is legal or not, we are compelled to worship. And whatever our financial resources, we trust God not a political party to meet our needs. As Paul said, whether we have little or we have much, we should be content because our hope is not in the things we have. It's not in who's in power in our country. Our hope is in Jesus. And so while our national future may be up in the air this morning, our eternal future is secure in Jesus. And so I think I just want to direct our hearts to that today a, a, a little bit, that there's a lot of chaos and things going on in the world, but we can stand firm. There's a reason that Jesus is called the rock. We can stand on that. Let's pray. God, thanks for loving us. Thanks for giving so much to us. And thank you. God, thank you for placing us in this country. It's simply by your grace that each and every one of us are here in a country that that right now we get to worship you freely 
and without shame. And God, we thank you for this incredible country to live in. And we ask today that you would, you would bless our, our local and state and national leaders, that you would give them wisdom, that you would give them understanding and discernment. And most of all, God, that you would turn their hearts and really turn every heart in our nation back to you. That we would um, find strength and, and, and hope and that firm foundation in you that we can't find in all the other things that we've tried. So God, t today, in this moment, as we, as we think about even uh, uh, giving financially to you, we're just drawn back to you to know that everything we have, what we have in our country, what we have in our pocketbook, what we have in our homes, it all comes from you. God, would, would we be a people who are trusting um, in you and that nothing would shake us because of that. But thank you, God, for, for giving so much to us uh, and, and, and allowing us to live in this great country. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you want to support Real Life and the mission and ministry of this church, if you're here in person, you can do that with cash or check at the bucket in the back. You can also go uh, to the app, reallifecc.us. Click on the orange give icon down in the bottom. If you're joining us online, you can uh, go to the app at reallifecc.us. Click on that orange icon, or you can mail your check to the address on the bottom of the screen over here or at the bottom of every page on our website. All right, thanks. Let's have a good morning. Mississippi kite that attacks uh, the mail carrier on one of the routes here in town. That is a battle I choose not to fight. As believers, a lot of the battles we are in are because of Satan. There are battles we cannot win without God. Everyday Essenians, we face battles, whether the battle is drug addiction, adultery, pornography, hate, fear, or countless other battles. With the weight of all these battles, it could make life seem hopeless. How do we avoid succumbing to all the things that life throws at us? By accepting Christ as our Lord and Savior. The battles we face have already been won by Jesus dying on the cross for us. Just remember, every battle doesn't require our participation. There was times we just need to stand still and watch God do the fighting. Um, here at Real Life, we practice an open communion. There's tables set up in the back and on the sides of the auditorium. So anytime during this next song, uh, feel free to take communion. Uh, with your family, friends, or even by yourself. All we ask is you be a believer in Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Father, just want to thank you for the sacrifice of your son on the cross for our sins. Um, Father, want to thank you that we don't have to fight all these battles alone, that you're in our corner and you fight the battles for us. In Jesus' name we pray.
So on uh, Tuesday of this new week, we'll once again make our voices heard to the poll, uh, as we head to the polls and, and vote. Um, voting is a challenge for me uh, today, and it's become increasingly difficult for me to wade through the political months and years, it seems, as we head toward each new four-year rotation. And, and I think um, there's a reason, and, and maybe I've kind of narrowed down on it. I think, I think voting is a challenge, and this time of year is a challenge for me because we have become accustomed to, in, in my opinion, become accepting of a pretty significant level of dishonesty among our elected officials. For years, we have heard state and national um, politicians promise to do a whole host of things that in reality, honestly, I think they have no intention of actually doing. Uh, so I, I believe, and, and, and maybe hear me and give me a little grace this morning as I work through this, but I believe they knowingly lie in order to get the vote. Knowing full well that when they are elected, they can pretty much do whatever they want. We the people have allowed ourselves to be governed by individuals who are not faithful. In many cases, they are not faithful to our Constitution. Many of them are not faithful to their spouse or in relationships. Some don't appear to be faithful to their own claimed religion. They certainly are not faithful to we the people. At the same time, each political party's base has been faithful to them, even though they lie and cheat and manipulate and cause the problems they claim they are best equipped to solve. We live in this country in a republic, a republic that's supposed to be governed by the rule of law and democracy. But in reality, we live in a society where everyone feels they can do whatever they want. The Israelites were supposed to be a theocracy, not a democracy where majority rules and not a monarchy where there's a king or queen, but the Israelite people were supposed to be led by God. God, who referred to himself as a shepherd, who loves and cares for his sheep. A shepherd in, in the day would be very well known. Like every person that, that the shepherd idea is mentioned to would immediately understand the kind of relationship that a shepherd has with his sheep. The shepherd, the Bible says, knows their sheep by name. They call them and they lead them to where they, they go. In fact, that famous psalm by David talks about being led by still waters and into green pastures. And that's the idea of a shepherd and sheep relationship in Scripture. God promised to lead the Israelite people to those good places, a good land. In the Bible, it's called a promised land. He promised to love them to provide for them, to protect them, and to make them prosper in their new home. 
And so here's how the progression went between God and his people. First of all, God called the people. He called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then later he called Moses to follow him and enjoy relationship, personal relationship with the God of the universe. And, and, and God promised those men that he would make these uh, family groups into a great nation. So he called them first, and then he chose the Hebrew people, the nation of Israel, to be his people, his treasured possession over and over in Scripture the Israelite people are called. And then when they screwed up, God even chased them when they wandered away from him in sin. And that's one thing that the Israelites were always consistent at, wandering away. And so it seems like God was constantly chasing after the Israelite people. See, God promised Abraham that he would make him into a great nation, and God was faithful to that promise. From Abraham's son Isaac and then to Isaac's son Jacob, God extended his promise. Because of drought and famine in the land of Canaan, Jacob took his whole family, all 12 of his sons, to live in Egypt. And for the first 200 years or so, everything was great, right? They lived in this wonderful land called Goshen, and uh, they had uh, pasture land, and they had water, and, and they enjoyed the favor of the Egyptian people. But after uh, a couple hundred years, after the nation of Israel became very fruitful, they had lots of babies and more and more children, more and more people, the Egyptians got scared. And they, they saw, instead of just Joseph's family, they saw a nation of people on the border of Egypt that very easily could join forces from another uh, invading army and then conquer Egypt. And so instead of, instead of um, wondering if that's going to happen, the Egyptians decided to force the Israelites into slave labor. And even under the oppression of the Egyptians, Israel continued to grow in number. And then about 250 years later, God called this guy Moses. And through 10 incredible displays of God's power, the Israelite people were delivered from their slavery. For the next 40 years, Israel literally followed God through the desert. God displayed his personal presence among them, in the column of cloud during the day and a column of fire at night. A column that could be seen from miles away. Now, um, uh, you it, joining us online, you may not be familiar with El Dorado, but those of you who live around here know that on certain days and at certain times when the refinery maybe has made a mistake, I don't know exactly how it works, and they're burning stuff off in that great big smokestack, you can see that from Salina. Because a long ways away, you can see the trail of smoke that leads all the way back here to El Dorado. Now imagine, instead of smoke like that, there was a column of fire that could be seen, not just from tens of miles away, a long ways away. And every nation around saw that pillar of fire and knew that the God of the Israelites was present with his people. But then the story takes a turn because Moses dies, right? Uh, at the end of 40 years before the Israelites make it into the promised land, Moses dies outside and Joshua comes to power. 
Joshua leads the people across the Jordan River and they take Jericho and they begin to possess the land that God had promised, but the pillar of fire and smoke, God's presence with the people, left at that point. A short time later, Joshua dies, and the Israelite people begin a slow crawl away from God. The book of Judges in the Old Testament, the book we're going to be in in this brand new series today, is the account of Israel's abandonment of God. The God who who promised them this incredible land, who got them out of Egypt at uh, mighty, ten mighty uh, uh, miracles, and, and he led them through the desert for 40 years and then brings them through the water again into Canaan where they are to possess the land. And yet, even after God did all of these things, the Israelites continued to follow the idols of the nations that they were conquering. And so there's this recurring theme in the book of Judges, and it's pretty straightforward and consistent even with our world today. And you see it uh, uh, happen many times in the book of Judges. It says this, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Now, the amazing thing I think about the book of Judges is not the foolishness of the Israelites, but it is the faithfulness of Israel's God. And so we're going to kick off this new series today looking at the Israelites' pattern of failure and God's pattern of faithfulness. Now, hopefully, by the end of the morning today, you'll leave here with a little more hope as we face the polls on Tuesday. Like so many things in our lives, Israel begins strong. There's a reason we have the term honeymoon period, right? Everything is great when it's at the beginning. It's wonderful, and you think it's going to be going to be fantastic, and you have these ideas and hopes and dreams of what it's going to be like, and then after a while, reality begins to set in, and, and you realize that people aren't as friendly uh, six months in as they were six days in, and and things begin to get difficult, and they begin to get hard, and you, you meet the daily grind of getting up. At, you know, every day you got the same old thing going on, and so, and so it gets tough. Life just gets tough, and that's what we see happen in Judges. Instead of being strong, the Israelite people begin to succumb to sin in their lives. So we're going to look at um, Judges chapter 1. Verses 1 to 4 uh, first. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, which of our tribes should attack the Canaanites first? Judah, the Lord answered, I'll help them take the land. Now that all sounds great, right? So Joshua dies and the people go to God. Like that's what they're supposed to do. And so they come to God and they say, God, what do you want us to do? Joshua's dead. Moses is dead. What do you want us to do? This is how a theocracy is supposed to work. And God responded to them and said, send Judah into battle first, and, and I'll be with them. I'll provide. I'll protect. I'll help them take the land. So what does Judah do? The people of Judah went to their relatives, the Simeon tribe. They didn't go to battle, right? You got to catch that. They didn't go to battle, 
they went to the tribe of Simeon. And they said, uh, look, the Canaanites live in the land God gave us. Help us fight them and we will help you. And so troops from Simeon came to help Judah. Together they attacked an army of 10,000 Canaanites and Perizzites at Bezek. And the Lord helped Judah defeat them. I think it's really interesting in the first several verses of Judges, you see the people asking God what to do. God clearly says, send Judah first. And instead of Judah just going into battle against the Canaanites, they go and ask Simeon. They're like, look, like we kind of trust God, but not completely. Anybody ever been there? You, you feel like, okay, I, God wants me to do this. He wants me to go in this direction, but I need some help. And so we want to grab somebody to come with us. I'm, I'm a little scared. I want somebody with me. Come on, let's go. And so Judah takes Simeon and they go to battle. And that wasn't necessarily a terrible thing. I mean, it wasn't what God said to do, but it wasn't necessarily a terrible thing. But look at the bottom. It says the Lord helped Judah defeat them. Now, several times this is going to come up in the next several verses of chapter 1. We're not going to look at them all, but what you see is God continually helping Judah and Simeon is completely left out of the equation. Now, Judah gains a lot of victories and they do a lot of good things, as we'll see in just a minute, um, but not because Simeon helped them, it was because God helped them. The people began to take over the land just as God had instructed them to do, right? And it was kind of going pretty well. They were driving some people out. They were doing some good things. God was blessing Judah through that. He was giving them victory because they were kind of following what he had said to do. But months or maybe a year, we're not really sure of the time frame here, they went into a process where they called all of the leaders of the families they gathered together and began sharing what each tribe had done to drive out the Canaanite people from the land. Now, this story of Israel dispossessing nations of people and taking the promised land, it, it seems a little odd, right? Like, like maybe in America today, we might think back to some times in our history where... Um, people dispossessed other people who were in the land. But there's a difference here. The people who lived in Canaan were evil, pretty terrible people. And I'll share with you why in a few minutes as we get a little farther into the message. But this was God's land to give. And he promised it to the Israelites. In fact, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all lived in the land of Canaan. And if people followed God and did what he wanted, this would never have happened. And so this was part of the discipline and part of God's plan for bringing people to himself. So the conquest of Canaan begins the tribes are scattered all over as they're fighting to kind of clear their own territories. And at some point, they gather the heads of the families back together in one place to talk about how it's going. So this was a high-level official meeting, and it started out with the question, what's going right? And we see that in, in Judges chapter 1. What's going right? And, and Judah's like, hey, we asked God what to do, and God began to bless us. We drove people out, and, and, and our uh, brother Simeon, his tribe, and they came and helped us. So in Judges chapter 1, verse 5, all the way down through verse 18, 
We're getting the answer, if you go and read that, you're getting the answer for what's going right as the people take over the land. Judah, with Simeon's help, has conquered territories. They were marrying. They were uh, growing as a, as a tribe, as a people. Their relationship with the tribe of Simeon was great. Like everything was going good for them. In fact, Caleb, who was alive with uh, Moses, he was one of the few that were alive, the generation that was alive when they came out of Egypt to actually make it into the promised land. There were only two, Joshua and Caleb, who got to do that. And Caleb was given the portion of land that had been promised to him by Moses. Um, of course, he had to defeat three clans of the Anakites, and Goliath was an Anakite, okay? So uh, they were giant people. Caleb went in and he defeated them. So they're sitting around a table, right? And they're talking about what's going right. And Judah's like, hey, I'm going to go first. Look, we asked Simeon. He came and helped us. And we're doing all these things. And our families are marrying. And our, our tribes are growing. And, and, and Caleb drove out these Anakim people and, and uh, did a great job. And like, we're really doing what, what we were supposed to do. And then things kind of... Um, turn sour because somebody in that meeting has to ask the question, okay, we've heard kind of what's going right, now what's going wrong? And then we begin to get the list. Here's the list that we have. Uh, there's just a lot of stuff, so I'm just going to throw it out. You can look back at it later. In chapter 1, verse 19, the people who lived in the valley, this was their excuse, they have chariots. And so Judah was unable to make them leave or take over their land. So Judah said all the good things that they did. And then they're like, well, but we missed this, right? Then in verse 21, the tribe of Benjamin pipes up and they were unable to defeat the people living in Jerusalem or to capture the town. Now, of course, we know they eventually did, but this first onslaught, they were unable to do it. In verse 28, Manasseh says they were unable to drive the Canaanites from the territory. In verse 30, Zebulun couldn't get rid of the Canaanites, but forced them into slave labor. We'll talk about that in a second. In verse 31, Asher was unable to conquer the territory. 33, Naphtali couldn't defeat them, so they forced them into slave labor. In verse 34, Dan couldn't take the valleys, so he had to settle in the hill country of their territory. In verse 35, Ephraim and Manasseh joined forces on the other side of the Jordan. They were unable to clear their territory, but as they grew, they forced the people into slave labor. Now, God had done some pretty amazing things for the people. He had parted the water two times, both in the Gulf of Aqaba when they left Egypt, and then again as they passed through the waters of the Jordan to get into Jericho. He had brought water from a rock, a rock in which the Israelites drank from for 40 years as they wandered in the desert, right? They're in a desert territory. There's no water. And so Moses hits the rock with his staff. He wasn't supposed to do. The rock of Horeb splits open and water gushes out of that rock for 40 years. Now you can go home and Google. If you're home right now, you can do that. Uh, you can Google the rock of Horeb and there will be pictures that will pop up. And you can actually see when you look at the rock closely, it's huge. I mean, it's bigger than this building. It's ginormous. Um, when you look at the rock, where the rock is, it just looks like it's been split, just like that. And when you look at it, the inside of that rock appears to have been worn by water in the desert. 
There's no water there. It's a pretty incredible um, thing. Google it, uh, look at it later. But what we're hearing in the rest of chapter 1 is these tribes of Israel and their excuses. The Canaanite people were too powerful. They were too big. They had chariots. And so instead of trusting God and following his direction, they began to make their own rules, which included the objectification of entire nations and people groups as they forced them into slave labor. Now, this is really strange to me, and I said we'd come back to this. This is strange to me. That um, uh, strange to me for two reasons. One is, um, not very many years before this time, 40, 45 years, something like that, uh, Israel had just been rescued out of forced slave labor in which they had been in for 250 years. You would think that a people group who had experienced forced labor would not want to do that to anybody else. And yet, it sounds like a good idea. And so what's happening is the tribes are coming in. They're trying to, to dispossess these people. The people are putting up a fight, right? And, and so it gets difficult for them to drive those other people groups out. And so they begin, they begin to make little changes. They go, well, God told us to do this, but it's difficult. And so we're going to do this. See, it's funny that several of those tribes were not strong enough to drive the other nation out but they were strong enough to force them all into labor. That doesn't make sense to me. If you were strong enough to, to force them to perform slave labor for you for a long time after this, why weren't you strong enough to force them out? I think the answer is because they just really didn't want to. Now, let's bring that to today. There are probably things in our lives when you came to Christ and you made that initial uh, confession and God began to change your life. At some point, there was something in your life that was difficult to remove. There was an addiction or a habit or something that you just enjoyed and you felt a Holy Spirit kind of going, hey, maybe you need to distance yourself from that person or that thing or that crutch. And you're like, ah, that's hard to do. And so maybe what I'll do is I'll continue to grow in my relationship with God, but I'll let this thing stay in my life because it's just too hard to remove it. That's what's going on with the Israelites. They were strong enough to force them into labor, but not strong enough to drive them out, which means they must have decided at some point they didn't really need to get rid of, of those people. And there's a word for that, and I think the word is compromise. The Israelite people simply began to compromise on what God had told them to do. Now, God had some pretty specific instructions when the people went in to conquer Israel, conquer the nation, uh, Canaan pretty specific instructions, but it was difficult. And so they began to compromise. Little by little by little, they compromised. And after a while, you'll see that everything was different. What God had and what they actually did 
is kill their batteries. So you can hear my, see my lips moving, but can't hear me. I mean, you can hear me. And I appreciate that you can hear me. Um, while I'm muted to everybody online, uh, let me just tell you that I love you and I thank you for coming and being here. Um, and with the people that join us online, we continue to average um, pretty much the same attendance because we have a lot of people uh, on at Church Online and Facebook who watch consistently. And so when you put those two numbers together, we're running the same attendance numbers uh, between here and online that we were before COVID. Um, so that you might have noticed that the, the crowd in person is a little thin, um, but with the folks online, uh, we have So uh, don't love them any more than you. Don't love you any more than them. Uh, just happy to be able to do both of these things at the same time because our goal is to help every person possible. <laughs> Find real life in Jesus. <laughs> glad to have those of you uh, online joining us. We just wanted to test you a little bit to make sure you're paying attention. Figure that out. Okay, anyway, um, I don't even remember what I was talking about. Where was I? What did I say? Compromise. compromise, yes. They compromise a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit more. And you and I do the same thing, right? We know what God expects of us. We know what God wants of us, but it's difficult and so I'm going to compromise in this area, then I'm going to compromise in this area, I'm going to compromise in this area. And then those little compromises um, get to be a, a lot bigger, right? We're pretty used to this. Maybe not this word. We don't talk about it because it's not, it, it's not flattering to us to talk about our compromises. But, but in actuality, in reality, this is what we do. It's pretty prevalent in our culture. And so the Israelites, like you and I, began to compromise. Things got tough, and so they changed the rules. They started out strong, as we saw in verse 1, but then they began to let things slip. The first command, really, God said, you're, you're to drive out the people, and then you're to destroy all of the idols and tear down all the altars. Like this was God's deal. When you go in to possess the promised land, this land I have given you, you are to drive the people out completely, destroy their idols, and tear down their altars. So every time you see that one of those tribes says, well, we couldn't drive them out, so we forced them into slave labor, they simply compromised in what God told them to do. They allowed the people to stay. And I think what happened is at some point, as they were trying to drive them out, they were like, this is hard, this is difficult. And somebody said, you know, because this is how it always works, you're just kicking it with your friends. And somebody goes, you know, if you let those people stay, they could gather our firewood every day. Or they could clean our gutters in our neighborhood. Or they could whatever, right? And so that's how it worked. Like it sounds pretty good. You're like, hey, then I wouldn't have to go get water every morning. I wouldn't have to collect the firewood. This sounds a good idea. Let's do that. And so they started out strong. They began to let things slip. First, they let the people stay. And then what happens is that they didn't destroy their idols and they didn't tear down their altars. Why didn't they do that? Because they would have had a revolt 
by the people who are now in forced labor if they to- destroyed their altars, uh, uh, tore down their altars and destroyed their idols. The, the indigenous people would have re- revolted, right? They would have like, no, you can't do that. And so the Israelites compromised by letting the nation stay and then had to compromise more by allowing their idols and altars to remain. Otherwise, they knew they were going to have a bigger fight. So all the heads of these tribes come together and they're talking about what went right and then all of the things that had gone wrong according to what their uh, directions had been. And so this is what we read in chapter 2, verse 1. The Lord's angel went from Gilgal to, I don't know if I'm saying this right, but to me it probably should be pronounced Bohim or something like that. Okay, so uh, gave the Israelites this message from the Lord. Now, um, the Lord's angel sounds pretty weird, right? And, and initially you read that and you go, okay, so God uh, sent an angel to Mary and he sent an angel to Joseph and he sent an angel to these guys in Israel uh, from Gilgal. Why was the angel in Gilgal and had to go to this other place? Doesn't make sense. Let me just clear that up for you really quickly. This is the first time um, in my, uh, as I read it, okay, it could be wrong, but I think I'm right. I think this is the first time to the nation of Israel, to the people of Israel, that a prophet has come to deliver a message to them from God. They've had Moses and they've had Joshua, but these were leaders who were in direct uh, uh, relationship with God. Moses and Joshua went into the tent. God's presence came and dwelt there. They came out and told them. So these were leaders, but they had never experienced a prophet, somebody who just on occasion spoke for God. And I think they didn't know what to call him. And so they say, well, this guy delivers a message from God, so it's the Lord's angel. Okay, that's my workaround. That's what I think probably happened. Um, Gave the Israelites this message from the Lord. I promised your ancestors. This is God talking through the prophet. I promised your ancestors that I would give give this land to their families And I brought your people here from Egypt. We made an agreement that I promised never to break. Okay, so two times in that verse, God says, I promised this to your ancestors, and I don't break my promises. That's a pretty bold statement. And and so um, God made a promise. I think this is a next slide. God made a promise yep, to Israel's ancestors. We talked about the promise earlier, right? He's a promise to make them into a great nation and to bless them and protect them and provide for them and I'll fight for you if you follow me and worship me and, and only me, right? That was the deal that God made with the people. He would be their God. And then the second promise, he says, God never breaks his part of a promise, and, and so we see this in, in what the, the prophet had to say, that God is always faithful first. God is always faithful first. Now that's important because God has never waited for humanity, you and I, to get it right. He has always started the ball rolling. Let me give you some examples of that. He set up Adam and Eve in a perfect place. 
and he proved himself as creator, right? In, in um, Genesis chapter 2, we have Genesis, creation of the world in chapter 1, and in chapter 2, God recreates a bunch of stuff in front of Adam, so Adam knows beyond the shadow of a doubt that this dude is the creator. This guy he's walking with actually did create everything because God recreated everything in front of Adam. Then... Adam and Eve broke faith with him. God saved Noah and his family, and he gave humanity a reset. And then they broke faith with him. Instead of dealing with humanity on a worldwide scale anymore, God chose Abraham and his descendants and his family, and he led the nation of Israel until they broke faith with him. He eventually, God sends his own son into the world to die in our place and rise as our defender, and we still break faith with him. You're beginning to see a pattern form here. God is faithful first always. He always reaches out. He always bridges the gap. He always comes to us, and we're the ones who break faith. So here's the next bit of message from the prophet. So he said in the first verse, God promised your ancestors and he never breaks a promise. And now he's talking about the people of Israel. You promised, you made a promise as well. You promised not to make any peace treaties with the other nations. Peace treaties. Allowing them to live in their place along with you. Now they forced them into labor and somehow they made it right to them but really, they were just making peace. We won't drive you out. You just have to carry our wood. They made peace with them. But you promised not to make any peace treaties with the other nations that live in the land. Besides that, you agreed or promised to tear down the altars where they sacrificed to their idols, but you didn't keep your promise. God says, I keep my promises, but you broke your promise. Now, here's the interesting thing, I think, about humanity's relationship with God. God doesn't owe us. He doesn't reject us. And he'll never abandon us. But we owe him. Right? Even, even New Testament people, under the covenant of Jesus, we understand that he died in our place, our death, and he rose as our defender and our promise of eternal life in, in heaven. And so we owe him, and yet we're the ones who reject him, and then we abandon him. So let's look at the next bit of the story in chapter 2, because we're going to see this pattern really begin to um, emerge here. In chapter 2, verse 11, we just, there's just a whole bunch of things here that come out. In chapter 2, verse 11, we're told in that chapter that the Lord had brought the Israelites out of Egypt, and they had worshipped him. So initially, it started out pretty good, right? God was faithful first. He brought the people out of Egypt. He delivered them 40 years through the desert and into the promised land. He was faithful to them because he brought them to what he had promised them. But the Israelites stopped. They stopped worshiping the Lord and instead worshiped the idols and at the altars of the other gods of the nearby nations, those nations that they were supposed to drive out. In chapter 2, verse 15, God warns them, right? The Lord warned them 
that he would not protect them if they stopped worshiping him. But the Israelites were miserable because of their oppression. So God warned them he's going to stop protecting them. They continued to sin. They continued to break their promises. And so they suffered the discipline of God. They were miserable because of their oppression. And so chapter 2, verse 16 says that the Lord would choose special leaders called judges. That's where we get the name of the book. To lead Israel to victory against their enemies. So God felt sorry for them. And and so he he would bring these judges who would protect them and provide for them and, and, and lead them to victory. And chapter 2, verse 17, though, we're told that the Israelites still just would disobey. And they would stop worshiping him. And then again, we see in 2.18 that they, God would feel sorry for the people because of the misery that they were going through. This is what I think is so cool. Even though they broke faith with him, even though you and I break faith with God, even though we sin and we go our own way and we do our own thing and we compromise and we allow sin to continue to be a part of our lives and we don't completely drive it out and we deal with those things, God still feels sorry for us. It's because he loves us and he wants the best for us. And he's like, look, if you would just follow me, if you would just do what I tell you to do, you would find that so many of the troubles and the difficulties and the struggles that you face in life would go away. That God never promised our lives would be perfect, but he did promise that he would protect and provide and be there for us if we followed him and we followed him wholeheartedly. But I love this picture of God where he's like, look, even though you're stupid and you continue to break the rules, I feel sorry for you because of my overwhelming love. In verse 19, we read that the Israelites simply, and I think this is a good way to put it for you and I too, the Israelites were just stubborn. They simply would not stop worshiping other gods and following the teachings of other religions. It's easy to see when we look at history this way, that God was faithful first, but the people were foolish. And instead of following God's directions, they compromised. For whatever reason, they refused to destroy the idols and the altars that had been built all over the country because they refused to drive the people from their home. Because they didn't destroy these false gods and these idols and these altars, they were tempted to worship and emboldened their enemies so that they were unable to drive them out. I think these things all work together. So here's the deal. God was faithful first. And the people were faithful at first. Many of us, when we first came to Christ, we were faithful in the beginning. We were more faithful. We're, our lives were changing. We were following God. We were distancing ourselves from those things in our lives that were, were pulling us away from him or would try to. But we would begin to be a little more unfaithful because we would compromise a little bit, a little bit more. But as you and I, just like the Israelites, are unfaithful, God is always and will remain faithful because that's who he is. He is faithful. And so he said, worship me only and I'll protect and provide for you. And he wasn't kidding. 
When the Israelites stopped worshiping God alone, God was no longer obligated to protect them or provide for them. He was faithful to his promise, even when the people were unfaithful to him. Now, if you've been coming to real life for a while, you've probably heard my two-point parenting message. Over and over again, you've probably, probably heard me say this, and I think, that, look, this comes just exactly what God is doing with the Israelite people and what he does with you and, and, and I. As parents, if you're a parent, you need to be consistent first. You need to be consistent. If it's wrong on Monday, it needs to be wrong on Tuesday, and it needs to be wrong on Friday. If it's wrong when you're um, not tired, it needs to be wrong when you are tired and exhausted, and you don't want to discipline your kid. And so we compromise, right? We let them slip by with those things. If it's wrong to do it when dad is home, it needs to be wrong to do it when mom is home. And get this, it needs to be wrong to do it when grandma and grandpa are at home. I realize that's a little more difficult. Because we can't control grandma and grandpa. Okay, anyway, but the more consistency you can build into your parenting, the better it will be for your children. The second point is that you have to follow through. When you say as a parent, if you do that one more time, you'd better be willing and able to follow through with whatever the consequence is. And so if you say as a parent, like sometimes you just get mad, right? And you go, look, if you do that, if you ask me one more time, I'm going to send you to your room until next Tuesday. You had better be ready to quarantine that child. Just tell everybody they got COVID. Stick them in the room. It was a bad COVID joke. I'm sorry. So just, just like, okay, so you have to follow through. Look, this is what God does. He's consistent all the time. I made a promise. I kept the promise. I told you this. I did this. He's consistent all the time, and he always follows through. When he says, look, if you follow me and worship me and you drive the people out and you tear down the uh, idols and the altars of those people, then I'll fight for you. I'll protect you. I'll drive them out. But they compromised, and they didn't do it. And so God said, look, if you're not going to do what you promised to do, I am not obligated any longer to do what I promised to do, and I can't do it because I am faithful to myself. He's faithful, right? And so if God said, if you don't do this, uh, if you don't drive out the people, and if you don't destroy the idols and the altars, I'm not going to protect you. If God would have continued to protect them, He is unfaithful. He's not. So he has to follow through. Okay, Judges chapter 2, the next few verses. In fact, I'm going to read the whole statement because I think we need to get the whole picture. So the Lord's angel, we are talking about the prophet, went from Gilgal to Bochim and gave the Israelites a message from the Lord. I highlighted the promise parts, okay? I promised your ancestors that I would give this land to their families, and I brought your people here from Egypt. We made an agreement, and I promised never to break. Your, you promised not to make any peace treaties with the other nations that live in the land. Besides that, you agreed to tear down the altars or the sacrifice to the idols. But you didn't keep your promise, and so I'll stop helping you defeat your enemies. Instead, they will be there to keep you, to trap you into worshiping their idols. Here's the last verse. The Israelites started crying loudly, and they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Now, this is, this is important. 
Just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the nation of Israel, God created you. He called you and chose you, and he has chased you throughout your life. He was faithful to you when he first sent his son Jesus to take your place on the cross and die for your sin and and mine and all of ours. He doesn't owe you. He doesn't reject you because of your past or even your present circumstances. And he's promised never to abandon you. But you and I, we owe him everything. And we still often reject his ways and his words. And at time we abandon faith in order to follow our own desires. The the prophet speaking to Israel is speaking to us. And the question is, will we respond like Israel did? Israel cried loudly. The idea that's portrayed in, in, in this verse, we don't really maybe understand it in our culture or context, but the idea is that they wept bitterly. They heard the message from the prophet. They realized what they had done in breaking faith with God and compromising and and in not following through with their promises, and they broke down. You read in other Old Testament passages where it it will say that that they knelt in sackcloth and ashes. They weeped bitterly. They were broken in their Spirit, will we respond like Israel? The word, the Bible word, the churchy word that we use here is the word repent. And the word repent means to change direction, to change your mind and to change your direction. And so we really have two options. When we're faced with the reality that we've compromised, that we've rejected, that we've abandoned God, that we haven't fulfilled our promises, we have, two, we have two options. We can either reject the warning and continue to suffer and can continue in dis, uh, um, discipline, or we can repent. We can turn away from the things that have come between us and God. See, God is faithful first. He will not break his promises. And while that means we may have to suffer discipline like Israel and many others throughout history, it also means that when we repent, he responds. Because that's what he's promised to do. When we recognize that we've sinned and we've broken faith with God and we repent, he always responds. I don't know if, if you caught it, but there is a clear cycle for Israel And for you and I, we just saw in Judges, there's initial faithfulness, both on God's part and on our part, to God's plans. But then we begin to compromise and stop following God as closely as we once did. So God stops fighting our battles, which we experience as discipline from God. And then God feels sorry for us because of our misery, and he sends us some help and some hope, right? And usually that comes by a, a, a friend or pastor or something you catch on, on, on TV, watching somebody or listen to a podcast or something, and God just speaks right to your heart. And he's like, look, I promised that I would do this, and you promised that you would do this, and you're not living up to your side of the promise. 
And he sends us those little moments of hope and, and help and, and, and in the hopes that we would receive it and that we would repent so that we can enjoy a time of faithfulness again. And we start that whole cycle all over. And this is key to this. Without repentance, there can't be reconciliation. Without repentance, there can't be reconciliation. We have to recognize that we've rejected him. He hasn't rejected us. Now, in our culture, we're trained to, to look at the things God does and say, God, why are you being so mean? God's like, look, I promised you that this is what would happen, and I'm just being faithful to my promise. He hasn't rejected us. But because we've rejected him, we must be the ones to repent. Like Israel, we're tempted to make excuses for why we stop obeying. It's difficult. It's, it's hard. You don't know what it's like, God. Uh, the temptations are too strong. The struggle is too real. But ultimately, we've simply decided to compromise. And little by little, we've stopped following. We've stopped worshiping with our whole heart. Or we've simply started being stubborn. Thankfully, the remedy is always the same. Repentance and then reconciliation. When the Israelites realized that they had not kept their promises, they cried out to God and they offered sacrifices. They recognized their sin, they repented, and there was reconciliation. And so God always responds when we repent. That's our bottom line, actually. It's going to pop up in just a second. There we go. God always responds when we repent. And so let me wrap up this way. Has there been compromises in your life? Have you forgotten the promises that God has made or the promises that you have made to God? Maybe you're one of those people, I've heard all of these different kind of stories. Um, God, look, if you would just heal my child and bring him home from the hospital, then I'll go to church and, and, I'll, and I'll commit that morning to you every week. God, if you save me from this situation, I'll give the rest of my life to you. God, if, if you open the door, I'll be your missionary. I'll go wherever you want me to go. We start out strong, and then we begin to compromise. I want you to take the next several minutes. The band is going to come up and, and play. Um, I don't remember what they're going to play. Oh, they're going to play um, This is Amazing Grace, and we sang it already this morning. And and, and I want I want you to, to not just think about the song, right? This amazing grace that God has for us that he still receives us when we're willing to repent, even though we've messed up over and over and over again. It's an amazing thing just in and of itself. But while the band plays this next song, I want you to take a few minutes and consider whether or not you have been faithful to God. Perhaps your current situation or struggle is a direct result of your own stubbornness or sin. Maybe this morning you need to repent so that you can be reconciled to God and, and, and that, um, that doorway to him can be opened once again. And, and, and look, if you'd like some help, you're thinking about that and, and, and processing that, if you'd like um, some help or you're ready to take your next step, maybe, maybe you've been ready to be baptized for a long time and you just haven't done it, you're compromising that, you're like, ah, oh, I don't know, whatever. Um, Whatever that next step is, if you want some help working through that, um, head back to the Connection Hub.
um, while the band is singing or after the, the service is over, and we'll help you get through that. If you're joining us online or you're in person here and you're just a little uncomfortable with that, jump over to reallifecc.us forward slash I'm ready, or you can click on the um, next steps link at the top, and then I think I'm ready might be the first or second option there in that menu. Um, but we want to know what God is doing in your life and how he's drawing you back because we want to be able to help and pray in any way that we can. So let us know how God is working in your life because if you're a follower of Jesus, he's your king and you owe him your allegiance. Let's, Let's stand up as we um, sing the last song this morning. You would take my place That you would 
Have a great week, everybody. See you next Sunday.